Hi, this is Brian from Lean Portland. I wanted to share with you guys a, a, a webinar that Matt Horvat and I put together for BMRA. They are the Building Materials Reuse Association. The executive director, Joe Connell, reached out to us. We had met Joe when he was the director over at um, Portland Restore, which is part of Habitat for Humanity. And um, soon after he took the BMRA job and, um, but really liked what we presented and wanted to share that with this uh, industry. And, and they are a nonprofit that uh, promotes the, um, the vibrant building materials economy and as part of a world without waste. And so really cool organization that they have going on and they put on conferences and they have memberships with a lot of people in the reuse or deconstruction industry. So um, lines up well with organizations like the Rebuilding Center that we work with um, and I've worked at with a couple last couple of years. Um, the presentation we put together was talking about lean in the building reuse um, industry and we had uh, some help with the presentation from the Rebuilding Center. Um, Kelly Stevens was able to support us during the, the webinar which is great and then Chris Larson who was the process improvement person at T, uh, the Rebuilding Center now. He was helping us put together some of the slides and some of the photos that were there. So so in preparation for this webinar, Matt and I went over to the Rebuilding Center and got a view of some of the recent updates and they've been really making some changes. If you're in the Portland area, please check them out. And you'll notice that they've slowly been chipping away at some of the aesthetics on the outside and building some infrastructure in place. So really cool what they've been doing lately. Um, and then Matt also did a gamble walk over at one of the deconstruction sites in Vancouver, Washington, and took some notes and comments of where he saw some opportunities. And so that was what we were trying to convey in this webinar here. So, uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. And, um, thanks for listening. So like this is, this is Joe Connell, executive director for BMRA. Uh, as I was just saying before I remember to record, um, we're hearing from um, Brian Hurley and Matt Horvat today uh, about lean principles for building reuse. Um, I was, I ran reuse centers for 13 years. Uh, I know all too well uh, what it takes and what the struggles are. And um, I'm starting to stay earlier. I wish that I had known Brian um, 15 years ago would have saved me a lot of agony. So um, we're hoping today that uh, Brian and Matt can can teach us something about lean principles and how they relate to our industry. Um, one reminder before we go, if you can mute yourself uh, so we don't hear background noise, uh, that would be terrific. And if you would use the chat box for questions, um, then uh, we we can uh, filter questions in in that way. And I think because we have a small crowd, we can we can deal with questions along the way. All right, Matt, Brian, you guys want to take it away? Sure. This is Brian Hurley. Hi, everyone. Um, and then we're going to we we're trying to get Chris Larson from the Rebuilding Center. He's got some family um, commitments today, but uh, I think Kelly Larson is uh, sorry here <laughs> uh, to also join in and maybe add some comments as needed as we go through. So morning, this is Matt Horvath. So we'll kind of jump back and forth a little bit and um, kind of share some experiences we've had uh, just last couple of years working with a few uh, reuse and 
donation-based uh, nonprofits here in Portland, Oregon. And that's where we're based. So Lean Portland is really a collection of people like Brian and myself and somewhere between a half a dozen and 500 more, depending on how you count, of people who have had training in Lean to some extent and are out there trying to make work better at uh, public service sector companies. Mostly we focus on nonprofits with an environmental mission, but we, uh, we've done some work in homelessness here in Portland and are just trying to fill in the cracks of our free time, helping um, get projects to success. We're small, I've been around for five or so years doing different things and every year we're growing a little bit and continuing to spread the word. So first thing I want to do is try to explain this concept of lean because there's uh, some interesting uh, perspectives people have when they hear that word and sometimes it's uh, negative and so I just want to make sure we're all on the same page of, of what that means. Um, it's actually a, a word that was used to describe what was observed in Toyota. Um, there were some missions, uh, study missions that took place in the 1980s, late 80s to go study why the Japanese were beating the US in the electronics and the automobile manufacturing sectors. Um, they were losing market share to the Japanese and they were um, losing market share on the electronics as well because the products were less expensive and higher quality. And so when they went to go study that, they, deter they noticed that the operations were run uh, with less people, but they were more uh, efficient and higher quality and um, less inventory, less space requirements. And that was really intriguing to them. So they documented this and, and that was the word they came up with was this, um, the best way to describe it was lean. So it's kind of stuck. But um, when a lot of people we talk to hear about word, it, they immediately think that it's uh, running your operations with minimal amount of people and that everyone is taking on extra work and overloaded. And that's not what the goal is. What we're really trying to do is um, engage the employees in the work and help them identify problems in their area and make them visible and obvious for everyone to see instead of hiding the problems. But we need to do that in a very respectful way that we're going in to their work areas and asking them questions, not telling them what to do. And because they are the experts at their job. And so as consultants in our, in our jobs, we, we have a lot of ideas on how to do things differently, but at the end of the day, the people that do the work have to come up with those ideas and try them out themselves. Um, and they, they know what's gonna work best. We can just give them some things to consider or think about. And we have to make those decisions at something called the Gemba, which is where the work is being done. And so we can't do that in a conference room. We can't do that at a high level with, um, in a meeting. We have to go talk and interact with people who do that work and try to figure out how can we make your job easier, simpler, less stressful, less strenuous, less frustrating, so that you can actually do the work that you really wanna be doing, not doing the stuff that's um, distracting and, and keeping you from why you took the job in the first place. And so a lot of it's around just working smarter, not trying to make people go faster. And we also wanna have people um, more flexible. So 
things change all the time. And, and the more people are trained to be able to do different jobs and tasks to deal with the ebbs and flows of what happens on a daily basis, the more flexible and call it agile the, the organization can be. And you can handle your customer requests as they come in at sporadic times. So like, um, unfortunately, your customers don't drop off in a consistent pattern throughout the day, evenly spaced out. They come in batches and, and groups and overloads that your processes. So that's why it's nice to have that flexibility into your workforce. We also want to take, um, as we free up time by doing things more efficient, we can um, allow the organization to take on more work or provide more value, which we'll talk about uh, to the customers. And, and, and so it's not about uh, reducing staff, it's about doing more with the current staff you have. And so, um, again, not trying to make people work harder or cut down the number of people. It's to uh, make the job easier so people don't feel as overwhelmed. So by, by looking at what the customers really value and trying to understand that, what we try to do first is uh, reduce the waste in the process. And I'm going to talk about what that means. And a lot of that waste shows up between process steps, not necessarily in the process. That's the easy place to start is, how do I take this task that takes three minutes and cut it to two minutes? But instead, why does it, when I complete that task, why does it sit for 10 minutes between a process? And our customers will feel that and they're waiting that whole time. So I could shave that one minute off, but it's still gonna sit for 10 minutes in between that process. That's where we first start looking for some of the waste. And so we wanna get things through the process faster. I'm gonna enhance uh, or go into more details on that. That will free up some people resources so then you can figure out what other services or value can we provide to the customer. And the other real important thing about this is you want to make sure that you're operating as a team or as a system, not as individuals or specific departments or, or work areas, because it's got to operate across all those areas smoothly. And that's what we uh, first look at is how smoothly is it is, are the products and services flowing through your organization across different departments. So the, um, you know, when we talk about donations, it's how, how smoothly does a donation come into the door and come through the uh, processing and back out available for sale and then to the customer. The other piece then is uh, there's back office processes. And so when there's requests for uh, grant submissions, how, how long does it take to go through that process before it gets completed and filled out and submitted? And you'll see that it gets stuck a lot of the times through in between those processes and that holds up the whole thing. So those are some of the key concepts that we'll enhance on here. So some of the benefits for organization to, to go down this path would be first the employee and volunteer engagement. If you can make the processes simpler and easier and take out some of the waste, they have a better experience, either as a volunteer or the staff can spend more time interacting with their customers or actually processing um, information and processing donations, not uh, looking for things and searching for things and trying to uh, fix problems that have been recurring all the time. So you can speed up the time for a donation to get through your facility. It can reduce the amount of space requirements because you're removing things that don't belong in the process 
and, and kicking them out. You can lower the inventory levels and that's kind of tied in with the space, but also the inventory is a good indicator of where problems are at. And so when you, those when problems start to accumulate, you can see that more easily. It reduces the amount of wasted time in the process. It helps focus you on errors and mistakes and try to remove those. I mentioned it brings makes the problems more visible, so they stand out and are more obvious. Otherwise, usually what organizations we see is they have some of the problems are visible and some of them are not, and we're only working on the ones that are obvious visible, and that can be a challenge. And we want to get all the problems on the table so we can know which ones to go after first. We have much more flexible workers to be able to handle the, the different changes and demands that come to your organization. It ultimately will result in reduced expenses and costs, but usually you don't start with that because you can make some maybe poor decisions, not knowing the process that well and making decisions that seem good from a financial standpoint, but can be uh, not good in the long run or not good for your customers. So usually we say, if you focus on making the process better, the, the cost savings will come in the, in the later on, but not to focus on that as a primary mission. And ultimately, it's going to increase the value and the satisfaction of your customers and any other stakeholders that you have. Can I just make yep. a quick point, Brian? Um, what you first started out by saying around employee and volunteer engagement uh, came to mind because we've done a number of projects where we've helped the team streamline their employee onboarding process. I remember uh, making a, a map, a process map of the volunteer onboarding process at um, Social Venture Partners. And uh, it was really powerful to see the team come together and, and actually just use sticky notes on a wall to map out the process. And they had this one section where it was iterative and um, there was a lot of back and forth and negotiations between the volunteer and the, the organization. And, and, and because it was this kind of creative back and forth process, they didn't think they could map it out at first. But we just did it and we did it in a circle format and it just really worked for them and they started to see where it was so confusing and why and they were able to get their hands around that process and start to improve it there's five main principles um, that i, I want to share and the first starts at the top with value Value is defined by your customer or your stakeholders. And so oftentimes the organizations feel like they have a pretty good idea what their customers want, but uh, there are some a lot of assumptions that go into that. And what we want to do is go back and really challenge those and, and really ensure that you do understand your customers and what they want exactly. We find a lot of times people assume that and then they actually go talk to them and ask specifically, you know, is this is the service or the product we're providing to you. Is this exactly what you want? And oftentimes they learn a lot from that discussion that says, well, we're not quite meeting their needs. Maybe uh, there aren't any other options and that's why they're selecting us. But um, there's also opportunities to make it better if we uh, can incorporate that into our processes going forward. So that's a really important first step is we have to make sure we're, we're actually providing what they want. And so we need to spend time getting that feedback. And sometimes that's tough to hear, but that's the first important step. Once that's very clear, um, and, and 
one more comment. What we define that is based on a simple question is, are they willing to pay for that? Or, um, you know, and that can be tricky with some nonprofits, depending on their models that maybe they're not, the person's not directly paying for that, but is someone willing to pay money for that product or service? And if not, then we have to question, is that really important? So once we've determined that it is something of value, that they do like it, they do want to uh, support it, then we have to figure out what are the steps it goes through. And that's called the value stream. And this is the whole system that it goes through, not just the receiving process and not just the checkout process and not just the um, denailing process, but what is, how does that whole process work? And that was kind of what Matt was alluding to is just a sticky note exercise of putting all those steps together because it crosses different groups. And a lot of people know they're part of the process, but not the whole process. So often we'll just get people together and, and map out the entire system and then say, how is it working? And where are some of the opportunities to make that whole process flow a little better? And that's where we get into this flow concept where we start getting into some more of the, the tools and concepts, start looking at why, are, why is work being done in a batch format? Why are people maybe holding up their work till, for every Thursday to process their items instead of smaller amounts on more frequent basis? Because now things are getting held up in the process. And usually we see this happens because there's um, people are trying to optimize their own time, but they're forgetting that they're part of a system and they are slowing up the whole system to try to make themselves be efficient. And so we start to teach some of those concepts around smaller batches or down to doing one thing at a time and moving it along the process, even if it feels like it's not the most efficient way to do it. It actually helps the system run better. Then we'll get into this pull concept that says, now once I know how my process works and I've got it running pretty smoothly, now I'm gonna wait until I get a signal or a trigger or something from the next process that says they're ready for me to send them uh, that document or send them that donated item. And I don't shove work to the next process, I wait until they say they're ready for it. And that prevents us from doing things too early or doing too much at, at one time. And it also helps us identify when there's a process issue where someone's getting stuck or behind and we can go fill in and help out and get them unstuck. Whereas before, when we're not paying attention to this, we just kind of keep staying busy and we're just pushing work to the next process and overloading it. When in fact, if we connect all the processes together in a, on this pull system, then when there's a problem in one area, the whole process is stopped and that exposes the problem and then we can go go tackle that issue instead of just continuing to ignore it and pretend like it's not happening and then the last step is perfection is trying to continuously make improvements over and over again that it's a never-ending process you're never gonna say i'm we're, we're lean it's a journey that you go through to try to continue to make um the process better and better and then you have to go back into to the beginning and say, is this really what the customers still want? Because even a couple months later, things could change. So that's the high level process that uh, we typically go through with organizations. So I mentioned the term, the value stream. And so here being an example of, of taking um, reclaimed lumber from a decon site, it gets moved by a driver, it goes maybe to a temporary location to be stored. 
There's volunteers that are involved with processing the, the wood. It gets moved to a lumber yard where it's being sold and then it ends up at the customer. And so these are the, that would be more like the full value stream of the process. And often we look at specific boxes in there and try to make those efficient, but we have to make sure we're connecting them all together. And so one of the things we'll do is first understand that process and then we'll start to put um, and quantify where are the, where's the inventory being held today? Where is it getting stuck in the process? And that can just be uh, by identifying where the, how, how much material is at each of those process steps. And so if it's, if a lot of it's at the temporary lot where it's waiting to be processed, then we see that's, that's where we would start some of our improvement work because that's apparently where the bottleneck is in the process. And we figure out, well, why is it stuck there? Is it a problem with getting a driver there? Is it space in the lumber yard? Is it uh, efficiencies with the uh, denailing process? But all those can help us um, by mapping out the whole value stream, we get to see where the, the best place to, to improve and where our focus should be. And then once we find some issues in our process, we identify different types of waste. And these are the areas where we're not providing value. So things like transportation, where things are just moving around, that effort does not directly result in value. It takes time. And so we want to reduce the amount of transportation and movement as much as possible. I already mentioned inventory, where you see inventory, that's an opportunity to figure out where we can reduce down some of that backlog and figure out why it's piling up there. We have uh, motion where you see people searching for things or reaching continuously for something or grabbing something that's not near their work area, having to go get it all the time. Why can't it be closer to them? So, so usually that's inefficiencies that we see at the work area itself. Uh, waiting would be waiting for decisions to be made, waiting for someone to respond, waiting for help. Uh, and that, that's an opportunity that's holding up the customer and taking time. Overprocessing would be, you think you're providing some value, but you're maybe going above and beyond what the customer really needs. So that could be, you know, the, how much cleaning do you do on a donated item? How much uh, uh, fixing do you do with that? Um, how much, how, how well do you tag the items uh, and price them? And where do you mark those? And so those would be questions that you'd have to ask and go back to your customer and say, are we overdoing it? And if so, then that's taking more time, but it, the customer's not valuing that extra time. Overproduction would be going and working ahead of something when it's not needed yet, which means I'm putting off doing something that probably is needed right now instead of, um, and, and that's an issue that's not being addressed and instead I'm working ahead on something else. Um, defects uh, relate back to errors and mistakes. So uh, if things are priced wrong or they're put in the wrong location or you accept an item that shouldn't, you shouldn't be accepting. Those are errors and mistakes and those create extra time that you have to deal with that you really don't want to be spending time doing. And then sometimes we have people in the wrong place. So we have skill issues where we have people with lots of talent not being their and their talents not being utilized properly. So how do we get them in the right area where they can be very successful and take advantage of the skills and knowledge that they have? We also have a lot of people with great ideas and we're not going out and asking for those ideas. And so 
we find out that, you know, yeah, I've been talking about this for a long time and I just quit bringing it up because no one would do anything about it or didn't know, I didn't know how to proceed with that idea. So you see these kind of uh, issues that got buried um, that really could help the process work better if someone would help them implement them. This is one of the uh, ways we tried to reduce the overproduction at another nonprofit in Portland. It's called Free Geek, and they handle uh, mobile devices, among uh, other things. But on the left, you see that this is their work area for processing and handling the uh, mobile devices. And they would have uh, boxes of phones that were donated, and they would kind of go through the phones and try to pull out ones they thought were valuable. Um, but sometimes they would work on items that were not needed, like they already had too many of them. Um, or they would, and there'd be phones in there that they probably should be working on. They didn't uh, think were valuable, but they were. And so what we were able to do is first just get it organized. And they, we gave them some ideas and did some training on something called 5S. And on the upper right, you can see that they continued with that effort and really cleaned up their area. And then the second thing we did though in the bottom right was help them organize what they actually had available to work on. And then what they, uh, what was really cool is then the, the person who was running the sales, they would, they do some online sales. He was able to come into that area, look at the rack of items and say, here's the order of things I'd like you guys to work on. Work on two of these, three of these, one of those, don't work on those. We got plenty of those and those aren't selling. Uh, but, if anytime you see something in this box, maybe it's a iPhone 4S, you know, process those all the time. We can sell those all day long and, and make good money on that. So they were able to connect in and make sure that no one was overproducing the wrong items um, just by having visibility to what they had in stock and what to process. So it wasn't, there was less of a guessing game on what to do. Here's an example of a, a project we did at Rebuilding Center. And Kelly, I, I imagine you have a perspective on this project too. So maybe I'll, I'll share what I know. And then if you've got any remarks. So in this project, you're seeing on the left-hand side, the original, actually it wasn't the original, but it was the most recent version of the checkout area. What we did with the team was, and the team, by that, I mean the team of employees, uh, there was four or six of them. We gave them little shopping assignments to go uh, empathize with the customers to see what was value added and non-value add. So we had them build a dog house and had them like replace a door. A few typical things that you do when you go to the rebuilding center. And then we uh, had them go through the entire customer process, including checkout. And the team landed on the checkout area as being one of the main places of frustration from the customer's experience. What they'd get is people waiting in line with questions behind people who are just there to check out. And so there'd be a lot of crossing of flows. Um, there'd also be people inadvertently bringing um, items up to the front counter with, uh, you know, like a door or other pieces of lumber that they shouldn't. And so there was just a lot of confusion going on. And then over to the period of, of a few months, we met and did a lot of cardboard cutouts with the same staff to figure out how to solve some of these flow issues and what you're seeing is the is the most recent version here on the right, where they've rotated the the, the customer facing area to a bigger space and got it away from that that roll up overhead door you see on the right hand side, 
and that allows uh, easier flows of traffic and there's a more obvious queuing space. The same, this same checkout counter now on the right can just be further optimized in a lot of different ways. You can see it's much larger. And the other things that you, that aren't visible from this photo is, is how they've addressed a lot of line of sight concerns. And so eventually they'll be able to have line of sight to the lumber yard and to the main entrance. So as to provide this cash register area kind of as a command center for the business. So we got started there, I guess a couple of years, years ago, ago now. Um, the life cycle of this project is it's still ongoing. Um, it took us maybe six months or so to get the project off the ground. We really had a lot of uh, communication to do with the organization. Um, the executive director at the time was involved in this project and he had to help um, find money for the, the building permit and the architectural fees involved because um, this project was significant enough to require a city permit. And so this is an example, a good example of a lean project in that the staff had to be fully aligned and on board with the improvements. Everything that was done here was done by LROs and by other members of the staff so that um, they really were the ones that were championing and supporting and making this project happen because it was really all about their work environment and their flows. And so, and so it was just a really fun project to see it come to fruition. It was a nice life cycle too of being an outsider, uh, helping a, a team work together and their their trust in the outsider in us facilitators. It took it took months to go through this life cycle of building relationships with people to create the trust that uh, that that they were, were really going to be the ones that experience the benefit. Kelly, were you around um, Rebuilding Center at this time a couple of years ago? I was, yes. What was this project like from your experience? Yeah, I think um, I'd echo what you said. I think it definitely was important to involve our employees in the process. And one of our employees, Pete, was heavily designed in the construction, which was a real point of excitement and empowerment for him. And we are, I would say, on kind of 1.0 of this project. We still, the initial plan um, was to have two points for our customers to kind of divide between purchasing or questions and concierge services. Um, but we haven't figured out that 2.0 part yet. So, um, but yeah, definitely we can already see the impact and we're, I mean, this area changes on a daily basis and at least a weekly basis where we're still kind of tinkering with it to see what works best. Like the arrow is pretty new, right? It's only last The arrow weeks. is new. Yeah. And it blinks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and in addition to this, um, another side project that just got implemented was we have an entrance, the closest entrance to this from our main traffic street on Mississippi Avenue, and it just got opened up with some removal of racks. Yeah, exactly. Um, creating a direct line of sight. So when you come in uh, before, it was unclear if you were at the rebuilding center, if you were okay to come in, where you should go, and now... Um, it's still a work in progress, but now you come in, it tells you you're here, and when you turn, you can quickly see where the register is with that blinking arrow. 
um, telling you where to head. Yeah, when you used to walk in on the left side picture here, um, you'd see just a wall of doors. And yeah. <laughs> no idea where the entrance was. Now, if you go into on the right side and take a right, you see that uh, checkout area. It's you can see right to it. And I think in a lot of um, reuse stores and reuse warehouses, we're we're using these racks that go very high, and so from the customer's perspective, it's really hard to get your bearings. And so I think either creating those lines of sight and those pathways where people can figure out how to get where they need to and or the wayfinding signage. Um, so we're really trying to up our game there. So I'll share a little bit about um, doing a waste walk at a deconstruction site. I think, I think you all are probably pretty familiar with what a deconstruction site looks like. I think, um, from my opinion, the, the thing that's consistent is that they're all different. And, you know, and they're, they've all got a lot of hazards and they're all dangerous. Um, and so there's a lot to look out for, especially from the, through the eyes of the staff in there working to uh, remove salvage material. A lot of safety concerns, a lot of uh, personal protective equipment required. So in this case, this is up in Vancouver, Washington. It, actually, it's a, it's a house that the, my day job business is having decommissioned. And so I was just able to go across the way to take a look. I walked in the garage and uh, the only real obvious waste that I saw on site was uh, there was some, some situation with the, um, the trailer or the truck that was going to take the reclaimed material back. Uh, logistics in driving is really, a, I think, one of the more challenging jobs for the reuse industry is just all of the pickups and drop-offs and sites located in remote locations and different configurations of vehicles have different um, capacities. So I walked in and I saw a material waiting, it was nicely stacked up um, in the garage. The right work was being done on site and, and the denailing part will be done at another location where that those flows can be optimized. Um, but so this is the obvious one and I think it's a, a pretty routine form of waste that we see. And this is, you know, when I say that there's waste on a site, it's not really like, it's not a value judgment of the quality of the work being done. It's really just an opportunity. And so it's like, oh, well, if, if we didn't have to do that, uh, that'd be better. And that's really all I'm looking at when I look for wastes is just where are the opportunities? Um, this was my method of how we did the waste walk. And so it's a really, it's a really great way that you can do this with a team. And if it's the way I'd recommend you do it is you do a little bit of training, uh, explaining what the wastes are, and then you look at the work environment together and you look for things that are less than ideal. And then that way you engage the staff, you see where their expertise is and the things that they're prideful about and also um, where they see, you know, where, where, what they'd like to have better. So, um, so through this house, um, and you can see the form here I'm using, it just has the three wastes. Uh, we just learned about seven, uh, eight wastes and uh, three is just, I think to make it simpler. And so I think about it as stagnation, meaning um, the collection of inventory waiting, overproduction, overprocessing and defects. And so in that case, it's just the stuff we didn't take as I, as I saw it in this example. Um, 
it was a pretty fast turnaround and the owner of the house didn't want to accrue any additional cost of decommissioning. So, so there was just the, the high value items were removed quickly and that left a lot of other salvage material that is probably going to go to the dump. So there's opportunity there. Uh, in movement, which includes motion and transportation, we saw the pile of the hardwood floor in the garage. And apparently through talking with the guys, it was because the truck was not a, equipped to transport all the material. So they'd, they'd, got, they'd come once and they're going back for a second time. So maybe there's some opportunity there. I know those jobs are hard and, and the, the, the actual truck drivers are really well um, They've been doing that, that kind of work in this region for a long time. So um, my guess is that'd be a hard nut to crack, but uh, it is what it is. And then the last, uh, lastly, I, I spoke with the guys um, who were actually doing the deconstruction work. And it was, it was really quite a treat. Um, you know, the room was kind of dark and it was a little bit cold. And, uh, and the guys were right at home. It was uh, one of the guys used to work for the Forest Service, and I could just see how he was really in his element. Um, and, but, uh, and he didn't have any complaints. I asked him, do you have your right tools? Do you have what you need to do this work efficiently? And he really did. Um, the things that I saw as what could have been an option but might have been more, more headache than they're worth is a heater, um, power on the job site, and lighting always challenges. They do have flashlights and, and, and battery-powered tools, which they, they maintain. Works works fine. I just threw these down as as possibilities because I was really looking for it. So I think that covers uh, the deconstruction uh, site waste walk. Um, again, just in summary, these are uh, a quick and fun things you can do with, say, a group of people that work the loading dock at your at your at your retail location, or or provide one of these forms to your cash register people and have them. Just just brainstorm what are the options and then take that feedback and and see how you can help them uh, remove a little waste in their day. So here's a couple of more snapshots taken back from the rebuilding center uh, within their work environment. And I just want to make a point about how um, there's, there's value adding work that staff do and we can do improvement efforts to help optimize staff's time as far as uh, taking away the wasted time of looking for office supplies. On the right-hand side is a nice example of organized environment. On the left-hand side is a safety station that's customized for the area where the safety station is located. Stuff's cleanly labeled and uh, organized in a way that doesn't allow for expired equipment and supplies. And it's just really important to remember who's working in the environment and what, what they need for um, just to have the base level human respect of providing a safe work environment and to be organized. And, and all this stuff takes a lot of time and energy to uh, gather up the, the resources and the energy to, to, to get organized and then to sustain being organized. Um, but to, to follow you know, the principles of respect, it's, it's, it's essential, really it is. So we're gonna carry on to a couple more examples at Rebuilding Center. Uh, Kelly, feel free to jump in here. What you're, what you're looking at is 
um, racks of hardware on sale on the floor of the retail environment. And you can see they're color coded. These color codes go to, uh, they correspond to a processing area that's been designed so that when material is received, it can be quickly processed by volunteers and then brought out to the retail environment. And so you can see how friendly and inviting an environment like this is for staff to help out with little training involved. Yeah, this has been a project that uh, was led by Chris Larson and has been, we've gotten a lot of feedback from our customers on this front and also from our volunteers who help us in a big way with our rough sort and our fine sort. Um, and the color coding, well, the buckets in that picture in the prior slide are new in themselves. Um, the buckets were in, implemented two years ago and uh, they have half half lids on them and they're all labeled, uh, but the color coding has made it incredibly more easy um, for primarily our volunteers to do the rough sort and then the fine sort. Um, and a nice a side benefit of it is that the design of that hardware sorting room uh, happens to be really easy to use for our volunteers with special needs and that's been a great benefit to have. So the visualization of it and the color coding uh, I'd recommend for any organization, especially those who work with folks who have um, different abilities and different ways they want to sort things. Kelly, could you talk about Chris's role too? I think yeah. that's Yeah, Chris's role, um, he's our first dedicated staff member who's solely focused on process improvement. So he's our process improvement coordinator. And so he is activated primarily in the store so far, but more and more throughout the organization. Uh, to help us find improvements in how we process materials and how we, um, our customer engagement experience. So how folks who visit us are experiencing the rebuilding center from customers to volunteers to our staff. And I, we had a grant, we have a grant actually, we're in the last year of it that's funding his position. And it has been a game changer. It's really a challenge. I think anyone in this industry could attest to the day-to-day -day operations are just so heavy in terms of uh, processing the materials and processing the people. Um, and so to have someone here who time, whose time is not on the floor, who's really dedicated to that has been a game changer. Yeah, I think we can attest, uh, Matt and I, from just when we come in on a infrequent basis to kind of see the progress over time. And it's been pretty dramatic just the last year or so of, of what's been changing and the activity happening. So yeah, I think Chris has been doing a great job there. Yeah, and we're lucky to have lots of longtime customers and the, the changes are palpable. You can hear people saying, you know, it's we're known for, many reuse centers are known for being a treasure hunt, um, but mm -hmm. sometimes we can be a treasure hunt to a fault where it's a bit more of an impossible treasure hunt. So we're glad to be finding the balance there for folks. So, so on screen are just a few more projects at Rebuilding Center that Chris has, has led. You can see a lot of customer facing information, uh, very appropriately designed for the environment of the Rebuilding Center. It just looks great. This was just clarifying the pricing, I think was a confusion for a lot of customers, which then they have to go find a staff person, which is taking time. And then that staff person gets pulled off the job they're working on. Uh, and then it's a disruption in um, 
not as good of experience if, if things are simpler then that saves time effort and makes the customer experience a little better and this reflects the hardware sorting slides and that you can see the rec one lumber on the chalkboard is yellow the frame showing the details on that is yellow and then we're working on having the lumber bays themselves have that color coding um, so that wayfinding there's so much signage in these reuse centers from safety to pricing to where to find things. And so we're trying to experiment with that color coding, uh, including the colors of our doors, uh, so that people know how to get from one place to the other. If I could, this is Joe, if I can jump in for a second. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things, uh, to dial it up a little bit, one of the things I've always noticed in our industry um, is, is that we, we have, Historically, we tend to preach to the choir, and um, as our industry has grown, we've realized that we can't just depend on our hardcore volunteer, uh, on our hardcore shoppers, who are willing to sort through anything to get a bargain, mm -hmm. um, and that as an industry to grow, we've had to make it easier for a broader, a broader spectrum of the population to uh, to reuse and to shop at our stores. Um, so. You know, I remember the old days of shopping the rebuilding center 15 years ago, and um, this these changes are dramatic, um, and uh, and it's all about all about those customers and all about getting product um, back out the door and 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 making sure they have a really good experience. So, um, I just wanted to highlight that from a, from from having seen many many reuse organizations across the country uh, there isn't a single one that i've ever seen that couldn't benefit from a lot of all of these ideas so. yeah thanks joe I and mean, it seems like every every direction you turn is the right environment for a new idea here you're taking a look at another example of providing information to the customers on the left hand side it's pricing on the right hand side it's some wayfinding for vehicular traffic they'd get people driving in the wrong way down the alley. And uh, you can only imagine how much confusion and frustration that caused. And we haven't had a single car go that way since that sign went up. All right. <laughs> Which is more than we were expecting. <laughs> so uh, Kelly, you might want to remark on this. It's some, a snapshot of a current work in process. Chris told me that on the left-hand side, uh, which was meant to be a before photo. Actually, it wasn't a before photo. This is a much after photo of how clean it, it got. But now on the right-hand side, then you see this environment where it's actually ready to actually be used for something. Yes, I think, um, as I don't know if it was Brian or Matt in the beginning was talking about space utilization and um, kind of over inventory. And we're finding you know, at a point we were looking at, do we need to relocate to get more room to do what we do? And we realized that through some of the space utilization, we're actually sitting on quite a bit of space that if we just use it more efficiently, uh, we can use it for what we need it for, which may not be retail. Uh, in this case, this is our mezzanine. So it's actually on a second story from our store. And it has been kind of a dumping ground for storage, which has meant that something as simple as needing more price tags may take a 20 minute search and you may not find what you're looking for. So then we're ending up, you know, we're ordering and spending more money on things we already have. So a great volunteer named Paul, who is a construction um, contractor has been volunteering tons of his time and care into this project. Um, so yes, on the right is, you can see some of the salvage doors for walls. 
and adding a floor there. Uh, it, there's another side of the room right behind this photo if you were to do a 360 and or I mean a 180 and you would see the other side which is being upgraded as well and these trusses make it so that this can't be a permitted retail or office space but we can use it for storage um, so really trying to find any efficiencies we can for our team getting what they need so lastly before we open it up for questions I just want to make a, some remarks about what I heard come out of Chris, uh, the process improvement coordinator at Rebuilding Center, because I thought these were so powerful. These were things that he said about how he makes decisions on when to tackle a project or not. Um, he works within existing constraints, and that that includes, uh, um, you know, being no having you know investing very little money, or um, you know, as it's a reuse store, identifying things that come in that he needs for a project but don't spend money on it. Do projects that staff support, um, which means getting making making improvements that matter to people. Um, don't do everything needed. He talked about how there's just so much opportunity for, for improvement work to be done. He could go through and do everything in a haphazard sort of way that won't last. And rather than doing that, he's doing things with permanence. And so, he knows he can't do everything that's needed, but for the things he can do, he's doing it in a high quality way. And I think that really makes a difference to see lasting out, outcomes with his effort. And so I wanted to bring you back to these principles of improvement because what, what's like on screen are the way that, that Chris has seen and adapted. I mean, he's made a common sense approach to making decisions on how to move forward with improving at the rebuilding center. And although we can talk about um, and even facilitate workshops around uh, identifying who your customers are, um, what value we provide them, setting up flow and pull, and and make and work toward perfection, it those things have to be translated to the environment you're working in. And so your first job or our first job is to think about lean, but think about Think about it from your customers and your contacts that you're working within, and then make it appealing and make it make sense for the people you're working with. It doesn't work to use a bunch of jargon terminology that's not easily understood by the staff that you're working with. It really has to be with the people on the floor. And so I, I just want to again commend Chris for what he's done and, and his attitude there at Rebuilding Center. He's making a big difference for that store and I think it'll it'll last for a long, long time. So that was all we had uh, as far as the pre-planned program. We'll take a minute uh, for questions or turn it back to you, Joe. Well, I've got, <clears throat> I've got one question that might prime the pump a little bit here. Um, I think many of us do elements of this intuitively um uh, either either by nature or by by being taught elements of it along the way um can can you can you talk for a moment about um the benefits of doing this in a much more intentional way um and how you would go about starting that intentional um method of of looking at it all yeah you bet joe thanks this is matt i'd like to take that one um yeah, I think the benefits of being intentional about it are that we can just accomplish a lot more. I find a lot of process improvement work to be really 
I mean, there's a technical aspect to it, but there's a, a social component that you have to go in parallel with. And so to talk about and make safe um, the ownership and improvement work that staff can do, managers can stop becoming the bottleneck to improvement work. And we can start to allow the 10 or 20 or thousands of people that work in the environment to make improvements. There's a, a 2017 Gallup poll I was just reading about last night that said three out of 10 people don't feel like their opinions matter at work. Well, imagine if we can create a culture where everybody at work, 10 out of 10 people have got some basic training in what a process is and who their customers are and some pre-permission to make improvement work. Now we've got, now we've got an army of scientists, as they say, rather than just a manager that's trying to, um, manage all of the improvement work who's already overburdened with everything they can do. And so, and so your other question, Joe, was like, how would you go about getting started with this? I mean, it, it's cultural, but there's, you got to do some tools too. You can't just, um, you can't, you, you can't just have good relationships. You have to actually do things. So do the waste walk with staff, start it to let people know that, that their improvements matter and that they're responsible for, improving their own job. And maybe it's within some certain constraints. So for example, I work in healthcare and there's a lot of safety issues and we're in a very regulated environment. So people can't just go changing anything they want to, but we put limits on it. And within those limits, people have the freedom. And so as leaders, we need to define what that is and provide some skills and training and some tools and methods for people to, um, to fix stuff that they see that's broken. Yeah, this is Brian. Um, it's, I think the giving people permission to make improvements, I think, is really important. And I, and there is some intuitive stuff that says, yeah, this is we don't need a lot of training on how to you know clean out this this area that's been poorly utilized and make it look nicer and and simplify it, color code it. Those are kind of a you know no brainer improvements. But there's a couple other things that do come up that are we want to make sure is coordinated. One is make sure we're not taking on more projects than we can actually handle and be successful with. Um, but the second one is we're not pushing problems to other groups and areas. Um, I've seen it where people will try to make improvements to their own area by making other people do more work for them. Uh, like, here, fill out my 12-page form so that I can make my job efficient. But um, they're actually pushing the work to the people doing the value-added work, and it's taking away from that work to fill out their form. So they've they've suboptimized their work to make their job easier, but it's uh, actually made the process take longer and more confusing. So that's not a good improvement, and that's why it needs to be coordinated. It can't just be everyone does their own thing. So I think the the one is just giving permission to it, but then also keeping some coordination around it. And I think that's where you've seen that that role is pretty helpful to have somebody keeping an eye on all these different activities to say, hey, you can't do that, or have you talked to the other group? Have you talked to the other department? Have you talked to the customers before you make just uh, random improvements all over the place? Great, thank you. Other questions? All right, I guess not. Brian, Matt, I wanna thank you very much, uh, very deeply for, for being with us today. Um, as, as you folks might know, this was our our uh, 
just our, our start at doing webinars. Um, we're hoping to do a lot more. Um, we know that there's a lot of common common threads, common questions, and common issues uh, throughout our industry that um, we're hoping that uh, we can we can help solve together. And uh, Brian and Matt, I, I really thank you again for your time and your experience. I think there's there's a lot of benefit that our industry can gain from uh, from these principles and these insights. Um, and thank you everyone for for joining us. Um, really appreciate um, your your being with us today. And I want to thank uh, Kelly too for joining in, and uh, Chris helped get our thoughts coordinated here. So thanks everyone. Thanks. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, everybody.